Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? We will read again verses 1 through 12. The Old Testament reading will be Leviticus 11.45. It is so brief, I would say turn to 1 Peter 2 as we will be there in just a moment. The title of the sermon today is The Church as Temple, Its Holy Character. The Church as Temple, Its Holy Character. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. First, Leviticus 11, verse 45. This is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel after He redeemed them from Egyptian bondage. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The New Testament reading, 1 Peter 2 Verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Brothers and sisters, this little sermon series on the doctrine of the church is very important. I I hope that you see it as very important. Uh, There's something growing within me, a, a desire to refocus yet again upon the doctrine of the church. It's something that we emphasized at the beginning at Emmaus. Uh, It's something that we have grown in over time, and it is something that I think we need to grow in even more. If we are going to thrive together as a church on into the future, then we had better know what we are. Uh, That really is what this sermon series is about. We are asking the question, what is the church? What is it exactly? And this morning we are giving special attention to the question, what is its character? In this brief sermon series on the church, I'm not focusing on the particulars so much. 
Uh, The particulars do matter. Questions like, how should the church be governed? How is discipline to be done? How is the church to worship? What are the elements of worship and what should the forms be? Uh, These are important questions that need to be addressed. But in this series, we are backing up from all of that a bit to consider the nature, purpose, and characteristics of Christ's church in a much more generic way. And we are doing all of this utilizing the imagery of temple. For the New Testament does call Christ's new covenant church the temple of the living God. Christ's church is God's temple. Its foundation is the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone, Ephesians 2, 19-22. Its stones are people chosen by God and made alive by His Spirit. These are graciously brought to faith in Christ. They rest upon Him as their foundation for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. They align with His teaching and way of life, 1 Peter 2, 4-5. And the purpose of this spiritual, inaugurated, eschatological temple of God is to worship God and to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. These are the things that we have considered in previous sermons. Today we turn our attention to the character or quality of Christ's temple church. And what is the character or quality of Christ's temple church? She is holy. She is holy. To be holy is to be set apart unto God. To be holy is to be free from the defilement of sin. To be holy is to be morally upright and pure. God is holy, and only those who are holy are able to draw near to Him in His holy temple. This was true under the Old Covenant in an earthly and typological way. Only the priests who were set apart unto the service of God were invited to draw near, and only after washing in water and not without animal blood. In the Old Covenant tabernacle and temple, Uh, we see that that facility, that structure, they were holy, and no unclean thing was permitted to enter in. If it was true under the Old Covenant, I say to you, how much more must we consider the New Covenant temple of God, which is the inaugurated eschatological new creation temple of God, to be holy? Are you following with me here? If it was true that the tabernacle and temple of old were holy, and that no unclean thing was to enter into it, How much more so ought the new covenant temple of God, which is the inaugurated eschatological or new creation temple of God, be kept pure? This temple that God is now building, this temple which will last forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth, is to be holy. To enter into it, you must be holy. To be placed as living stones within this temple, you must be pure. Paul alludes to this truth in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Speaking to the church in Corinth, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys, this could also be translated as defiles or corrupts God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do you hear this emphasis from the Apostle? He is saying, 
Do not dare destroy, defile, or corrupt God's temple. And you are that temple. God's temple is holy. And you are that temple, he says. And so he is demanding holiness in God's temple church. This presents a problem, doesn't it? For no human being is holy in and of themselves with the exception of Christ. So as I state all of these truths to you regarding the necessity of holiness in God's temple, you ought to be thinking to yourself, this presents a problem, for we are not in and of ourselves holy. How then can we possibly draw near to God in His holy temple now and for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth? How could we possibly be set as stones in God's holy temple? For we are, in fact, by nature, defiled. To understand how sinful people like you and me can possibly be set as stones in God's holy temple, two things must be said. Firstly, the stones of God's new creation temple are those who have been made holy by the shed blood of Christ. This is the first thing that must be said in response to the question, how can sinful people like you and me possibly be set as stones in God's holy temple. The stones of God's new creation temple are those who have been first made holy by the shed blood of Christ. If we are in Christ, that is to say, if we are united to Him by the grace of God through faith, then we have been made holy. We are not holy in and of ourselves. Paul testifies to this when he quotes a slew of Old Testament passages, including Psalm 14 and 53, saying, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is Romans 3, 10 through 18. And in that famous passage, Paul establishes that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty of sin. No one is righteous, no, not one. Or to use the language of holiness, no one is holy before God. No, not one. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are defiled by sin. He then remarks, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's a very important passage in Paul's letter to the Romans. Here he establishes clearly from the Scriptures that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are condemned by the law, No one is righteous, no one is holy, no, not one. So then, by nature, and because of our sinful corruption and sinful thoughts, words, and deeds, we are not worthy in and of ourselves to be set as stones in God's holy temple. Now that man has fallen into sin, we are not worthy by nature to draw near to God in His holy temple. Like Adam and Eve, after they rebelled, we deserve to be cast out banished and barred from God's temple 
forever. But we know that God has made a way for us to be cleansed so that we might draw near. This cleansing that I speak of was typified under the old covenant at the tabernacle and later temple by the water of the bronze laver and the blood of bulls and goats. The people of Israel were invited to draw near to God in His holy temple through the priesthood. These priests were washed with water. These priests had the guilt, their guilt atoned for by the blood of animals. They drew near to God as representatives of the nation. But we know that the water did not actually wash away sin. The blood did not actually remove guilt. Yes, it cleansed the people ceremonially on earth, but it really and truly did not cleanse them before God in heaven. You may pick up the book of Hebrews and read it if you need to be convinced of this. The cleansing that the priests received and the people of Israel received under the old covenant was earthly and typological. The water and the blood of the old covenant pointed forward to the water and blood which flowed from Christ's side as He hung on that cross. It is through faith in Christ that we have true and eternal cleansing for His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Matthew 26, 28. The living stones out of which God's eternal temple is being built are not naturally holy. Adam and Eve were holy when God created them, but they rebelled. In that moment, they lost their original righteousness. And all who descended from them are not holy, but are born in sin, Psalm 51.5 says, and are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3 says. We are not naturally holy. We are instead defiled and impure. How then can a sinful, defiled person draw near to the holy God in His holy temple? How can one who is corrupted be set as a living stone in the holy temple of the Lord? They must first be made holy. They must be cleansed. And brothers and sisters, the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can remove the scarlet stain of sin and make us white as snow before God. It is the only thing. This cleansing was offered to sinners in Old Testament times through the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the types and shadows of the old Mosaic covenant, and also it was prophesied amongst them. For example, the Lord spoke through Isaiah the prophet, saying, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. What a marvelous passage that is. Isaiah 1.18, the prophet is speaking forward, uh, speaking of the day to come when sins will actually be atoned for by the finished work of the Messiah. And this work is described in the terms of cleansing. A detergent is going to be uh, made, uh, made available that can actually cleanse uh, the sins of, of, of God's people, those who have faith in the Messiah. Our sins are like scarlet. It's as if we have these pure gowns that have been so terribly tainted uh, by uh, the, 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 the stain of sin. Nothing will remove that stain except the blood of Jesus alone. This cleansing is available to us only through faith in Christ. And the New Testament scriptures plainly declare that this cleansing is available through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I think of 1 John 1, 5 and following. Hear God's word. 1 John 1, 5 and following. 
This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. He is perfectly holy, brothers and sisters, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. That is a beautiful passage from John the Apostle, 1 John 1, 5-10. And if we pay careful attention to what He is saying, He is... He is urging us to acknowledge that we have sin. He is urging us to turn from it into faith in Christ. And twice in this passage he mentions cleansing. What we need is cleansing. We need to be made clean. We need to be made holy through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I think also of 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through Here Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth of their past life of sin. This is how they once lived and this is what they once were before placing their faith in Christ, before receiving cleansing. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If we were to put it into the language of our sermon for today, do you not know that the unholy cannot be set as stones in God's holy temple? He then goes on saying, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians of what they once were and what they are now. You used to be all of these vile things, he says to them. This is how you used to live. This was your way of life. This is who you were in your sin. He reminds them of that. But then he says, you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When were they washed? When were they sanctified? That is to say, set apart positionally and justified, declared not guilty by God in heaven. The moment they were drawn to faith in Jesus Christ through the hearing of the gospel and by the working of the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, the point that I am here making is this. The stones of God's new creation temple must be holy and pure. They must be free from the defilement of sin. And the only way for these stones to be holy is for God to make them holy by applying the blood of Christ to them. If we are to be holy before God, we must be cleansed. We must be washed. We must be justified and renewed. Our filthy, defiled garments must be removed. And we must be clothed with Christ's righteousness. All of this is received by faith in Christ alone. It is a gift freely given by God. And as a gift, it cannot be earned, but must be received. 
I want you to step back from what I've just said and to think broadly about the doctrine of the church and to think about all of the implications for the doctrine of the church that flow out of what has just been said. God's temple is holy. You are that temple. To be set as stones in this temple, you must be cleansed. To be set as stones in this temple and to approach God in this temple, you must be pure. Who then belongs to the church, brothers and sisters? It is those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus through faith in Him, you see. It is those who have made a profession of faith, a credible one, who are to be received into the church. It is these to whom baptism is to be applied, water baptism, which signifies many things, one of them being our cleansing, our having been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, having been buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. You see, the implications of this very basic teaching are important. They're, in fact, profound. They ought to shape very strongly our conception of what the church is. What is the church? What is the church? It is an assembling of God's people together who have faith in Jesus Christ. What is its characteristic? What is its, what is its quality? The church, brothers and sisters, is holy. For it is God's temple. God's temple is holy and you are that temple, Paul says. So clearly, the implications for us are very profound. We must think about them. We must live according to them. The first thing that must be said is this. The stones of God's new creation temple are those who have been made holy by the shed blood of Christ. Secondly, the stones of God's new creation temple will pursue holiness in their way of life. Stated differently, they will strive to be holy because they have been made holy. Do you hear this? God's people, the living stones who have been set in God's eternal temple, will strive to be holy because they have been made holy. Brothers and sisters, the order is very important. We do not strive to be holy in order to be made holy before God. Did you hear that? We do not strive to be holy in order to be made holy before God. No, having been made holy by God's grace and through faith in Christ, we do then strive to live a holy life before Him. To state the matter in different theological terms, justification, that is being declared right before God, the judge of all, justification leads to progressive sanctification. You see, justification leads to progressive sanctification. Sanctification flows out of justification. It is not the other way around. You know what sanctification is, right? We can speak of it in two ways. There is positional sanctification. That's when we're set apart as holy unto the Lord. That happens in an instant, the moment we believe upon Christ. We are set apart from the world and unto God. But there is also progressive sanctification. And that is the process, the ongoing process by which we become more and more holy in our way of life. God sanctifies progressively His people. And I am saying to you that justification precedes progressive sanctification. Those who are justified will be made more and more holy throughout their lives. It is not the other way around. We do not earn our justification through progressive sanctification. The order 
is so very important. It is crucial to understand. Brothers and sisters, to be right before God, God must make you holy by applying the blood of Jesus to you. He must give you the gift of faith. He must call you. He must draw you so that He can cleanse you in the shed blood of Jesus. And then, having been made holy, we do then pursue holiness in the whole of life. I can quote 1 John 4.19 here, which was prayed earlier. We love God. Why? Because He first loved us. The order, brothers and sisters, is very important. God does not love us because we first loved Him, but rather God has freely and graciously set His love upon us. He has taken the initiative to make us His own, to cleanse us. And because of that, we do then love Him. We respond in gratitude with this newness of life that He's been, been given to us. We then seek to worship Him and serve us, uh, serve Him in the whole of life. Uh, the order is so very important. We must get it right. To get the order wrong means that we do not understand nor believe the gospel. To get the order wrong, focus, brothers and sisters, please. I know we have lots of noise in the sanctuary this morning. Focus. To get the order wrong means that we do not understand nor believe the gospel. This is so very crucial. The gospel is not be holy to be made right with God. The gospel is not be holy to be made right with God. The gospel is that God makes all who trust in Christ holy by applying His blood, His cleansing blood to them. This is by His grace. This gift is received by faith. And those who are made holy will certainly strive to be holy in their way of life. Why? Because God has cleansed them. God has renewed them in the mind, in the will, and in the affections. God has freed them from the bondage of sin, and He has also empowered them with His Spirit. Will those who have been made holy through Christ, through faith in Him, pursue holiness? Yes, certainly they will. Why? Because God has transformed these ones. He has made them new. He has cleansed them. The order is so very important to understand. So with this clarification stated so as to protect the gospel and to guard against the error of legalism, it must now be stressed that God's people will indeed strive after holiness. I want you to consider seven brief things about striving after holiness. One, the Scriptures command God's people to strive for holiness. Over and over again, the Scriptures command God's people to strive for holiness. Having been made holy by God through faith in Christ, you must strive after holiness. We don't even need to leave First Peter to see this. In chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Peter blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. I want you to notice the emphasis that is first placed upon what God has done for us in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Look at all that God has done for us. Look at the initiative He's taken. Look at, look at the work that He has done within our lives. And then in verse 13 of chapter 1, He says, Therefore, in other words, because of all that God has done for you by His grace... We are to prepare our minds for action. He commands us to be sober-minded, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He then says, as obedient children. (laughs) You see, God has made you His children. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as He who called you is holy. Who called you? God called you. It was His work. He did it. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, because I am holy. Be holy, because I have made you holy. I am your Father. You are my children. As obedient children, this is the way you are to live. The Scriptures command God's people to strive for holiness. If you are a child of God, you are to strive after holiness. Two, the scriptures warn those who would claim to be Christians who do not pursue holiness. Strict warnings are declared to them. These ought not to have confidence that they are children of God, for their deeds contradict their profession of faith. You know what I'm referring to here? I'm referring to those people in the world who say, Yes, I am a Christian. Of course, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. They might even say, He is my Lord. And yet, as you observe their way of life, you see that there is no striving after holiness. And I am saying to you that these people, who claim to have Jesus as Lord, but do not honor Him as such, ought not to have confidence that they are children of God. For their deeds are a contradiction of their profession of faith. Their Their sinful deeds, their sinful way of life is a contradiction of their profession of faith. I want you to consider Jesus' words as recorded in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On That day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a stern warning. Jesus will say to even those who said, Lord, Lord, to him, depart from me, I never knew you, because these never honored him as Lord. Depart from me, he will say, you workers of lawlessness. Does this passage teach that we must earn our way into heaven through law-keeping? No. This passage does not teach that, and it cannot teach that, for there are many other Scripture texts that say the very opposite thing. We cannot be saved through law-keeping. Our salvation is received by faith alone, by the grace of God alone. But here Christ is putting His finger on another issue, you see. He's putting his finger on another issue, one that many of you have wondered about. There will be people in the world who claim to be Christians, who even say, Lord, Lord, who do not in fact know the Lord and prove that they do not know Him as Lord by their lawless living. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, he will say. This is not a reference to those who struggle with sin, as all Christians do. Notice the word struggle. It's a lot like the word striving that has been used throughout this sermon. What will God's people do in this life as they are pro- pro- uh, progressively sanctified? They will strive towards holiness. Will they reach perfection in this life? No, never. But they will strive. There will be a struggle. There are some who say, I am a Christian, and that Jesus is Lord, and there is no striving. There is no struggle after holiness. You understand, that is what Christ has in view here. He's speaking to those who have this dead and external form of religion only. And saying, invoking Jesus' name will, will do them no good in the end. First John 2, 3-6 through 6 comes to mind. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. What is John addressing here? He's addressing the question, how do we know, subjectively, inwardly, that we have come to know God? How do we know, uh, if I may use the theological term, how do we come to have a sense of assurance in our hearts that we have come to know God through faith in Christ? And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you hear these warning passages, brothers and sisters? That's what they are. These are passages that warn against false professions of faith. To say that Jesus is Lord means that we are going to honor Him as Lord. And what do servants do in relation to their master? Do they not seek to obey them? Do servants not seek to obey and to please their masters? I could almost feel the tension in the room. You know, I think pastors and Christians in general always want to qualify this, you know. And I have already done it. I've already succumbed to that temptation. I think it's, it's good that I have... None are perfect. None are perfect. It's about the striving. It is. It's about the, the, the striving after holiness. It's about a life marked by repentance. You know, we all struggle with sin. And of course, Christ and John here have in, in view those who claim to be Christians, but there is no striving. There's no true repentance. I, I think pastors in particular are always quick to want to alleviate the, the burden of these warning passages. But I think it's right for us to just let them stand from time to time. Uh, Brothers and sisters, friends, if you are claiming to be a Christian, if you are claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet you are living a life of sin, you ought not to have this sense of assurance that you are a child of God. If there is a life of unrepentant sin, a double life, a hypocritical life, that ought to be concerning to you. And I hope and pray that it does not drive you away from the Lord or from the church, I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit of God would so convict you that you would turn from that sin really and truly. Will we be made perfect in this life? No. But there is a great difference between um, living a life of unrepentant sin and striving after holiness in the Lord. Do you agree with me, brothers and sisters? Uh, This is something we must talk about here. Christ's church is holy. God's temple is holy. You must be made holy, and those who have been made holy will pursue holiness in the whole of life. And so let us just let these warning passages do their work. 
The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And those who know Christ truly will respond to that discipline with repentance and with ongoing faith. Here is the qualification. Three, though it is true that God's people will strive after holiness, it is also true that they will not reach perfection until the life to come. Corruptions remain within us. The world tempts us from without. The evil one also works against us. Sanctification is indeed a process. Those who have faith in Christ will pursue holiness. They ought to progress in holiness. But sinless perfection will be enjoyed by us only in the life to come. I cannot wait for that day. It is one of the things that will make heaven heaven. You know, the glory of God above all else will make heaven heaven. But also us no longer being plagued by sin will make heaven heaven. Our confession of faith speaks to this beautifully in chapter 9, which is entitled, Of Free Will. Paragraph 4 says this, When God converts a sinner, when God draws someone to faith in Christ, and translates him into the state of grace, if you are in Christ, this is the state of being that you are in. You're in a state of grace. You're no longer in a fallen state. You're in the state of grace. He frees him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Did you hear that good news? This is a part of the benefit that comes to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have faith in Christ Jesus are translated or transferred out of a state of of fallenness and sin and into a state of grace. They're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, to use different terminology. They are also freed from natural bondage under sin. They are enabled, therefore, to freely will and to do that which is spiritually good. A new freedom is enjoyed by all who have faith in Christ. And then there is this word, yet. So as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only do that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. So our confession is very careful to clarify that we are not in glory yet. We are in a state of grace. We are freed from bondage to sin. Yes, it is all true. We will be progressively sanctified. We will make progress in holiness. That word yet, I think, is so very important. It helps us to understand that all Christians, even the very best of them, even the most mature of them, will continue to struggle with sin in this life. Our confession of faith goes on in paragraph 5 of chapter 9 and says this, This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone in the state of glory only. And that is the state of being that I said, I long for that day and I trust that you do as well. I cannot wait for glory. I cannot wait until we are so freed and so renewed and so purified so as to will that which is only good. And pleasing unto the Lord. Romans 7 proves the point that true Christians still struggle with sin. That is a famous passage. It's there that the Apostle Paul himself talks about his own struggle with sin. At one point, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. (laughs) You know that passage, don't you? Where Paul is describing the, the, the struggle that persists within him. He has this desire to do what is good, but he finds himself still doing that which is evil. He then says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will save me? Who will will remedy this problem 
And then he simply says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a wonderful passage. I am convinced that Paul is talking about his present uh, spiritual struggle as a believer, still struggling with sin. And notice what he does. As he struggles with sin, it is indeed a struggle. There is a striving, and then he clings to Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what you must do, brothers and sisters, in your striving after holiness and in your struggles and failings when it comes to sin. You must fight the fight. You must turn from your sin, and then you must cling to Christ over and over again. You must say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where our confidence and hope is found. For a believer's confidence that they are indeed a child of God and have been forgiven by Him must first be grounded in Jesus Christ and in the truth of the gospel. I am here especially speaking to those of you who struggle with doubt. You profess Jesus as Lord. Indeed, you are striving to follow after Him. But you have a particularly sensitive conscience conscience, and so you find yourself always doubting am I really one of God's people am I really one of God's people some of you have that kind of conscience you doubt often and I am especially speaking to you right now saying that it is so very important for you if you have faith in Christ to have your confidence grounded not in yourself Are you hearing me? Not in yourself, not in your performance, not in your law-keeping, not in your love for God, the greatness of it or the lack thereof. First, your confidence must be grounded in Jesus Christ and in the truth of the gospel. Why are you right before God? The very first thing that ought to come out of your mouth is because of what God has done for me. He sent a Savior to pay for my sins. Through faith, I've been cleansed. Through faith, I've received His righteousness as my own. Our confidence, this assurance that we are children of God, must first be grounded in Jesus Christ and in the truth of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? That's what the Scriptures say. So do you trust Christ truly? Do you look to His shed blood for cleansing? Well, here is the objective and unshakable foundation for our sense of assurance. It is is the work of Christ, and it is finished. But there are two other things that testify in a subjective way to the fact that we are indeed children of God. First, our assurance is grounded in the finished work of Christ and in our faith in Him. But there are two other things that also testify to us in a subjective way that we are indeed children of God. One, God's Spirit testifies to our souls that we are children of God. This is what Paul refers to in Romans 8.16 when he says, The Spirit, that is the third person of the triune God, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit or with our soul that we are children of God. Of God. That is a subjective thing. It is not objective, but subjective. It is a a sense that we have inwardly as the Spirit of God ministers to our own soul. And the fruit of our obedience is also a sign of the genuineness of our faith. That too is a subjective thing. 
Uh, this is what John speaks of in 1 John 2.3 when he says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. In other words, us keeping God's commandments is evidence. It is evidence to us, to our minds and to our hearts, that we are indeed children of God. When you sin, do you feel convicted? When you sin, does God draw you to repentance and to Christ again and again? When you sin, do you turn from it and run after Jesus? Is there this striving in you? Is there this scratching and clawing after holy living? Well, that is evidence that you are indeed God's child. Do you want to know something, brothers and sisters? The unregenerate, those who do not have faith in Christ, whose whose lives have not been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, do not care so much when they live a life of sin. They sin and they do not care. Their hearts are hard to the things of God. But for you, if you are in Christ Jesus, when you sin, you care. You feel remorse about it. There is that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And what I am saying to you is that that is evidence that you are indeed a child of God. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And so if you are being disciplined by the Lord when you sin, if you are being convicted and and drawn to faith and repentance again and again, it is an evidence that God is indeed your Father. So then, if I were to approach you, Christian, and ask you, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know that your sins are forgiven? What should your very first response be? You should say, I know that I am right with God, Because of what Jesus Christ did for me. He lived for sinners, died for sinners, and rose for sinners. God's word says that I am forgiven if I trust in Him. And I do trust in Him. And more than this, God's Spirit is in me and reminds me that I am God's child. And even more than this, I see myself growing in holiness. I am progressing in sanctification. And when I sin, God's Spirit convicts me and calls me back. And I know that God disciplines those whom He loves. All of these things convince me that indeed I am a child of God and I am right before Him. This issue of confidence or assurance is a very interesting one. Please hear me, brothers and sisters. There are some in this world who are confident that they are right with God when they should not be. Isn't that interesting? There are a lot of people who live in this world, who are very confident that everything is right between them and God, and they should not have this confidence, for they are hypocrites. There is no fruit or evidence that they are a child of God, and yet there are others who ought to have assurance who do not. Perhaps they are plagued by a tender conscience or by some other thing. These need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. These also need to be reminded that true Christians do sometimes fall into sin. No one is perfect. It is our ongoing pursuit of holiness, our progress, and our positive response to the discipline of the Lord and repentance that are pieces of evidence that we are indeed children of God. Indeed, it is through this pursuit of holiness and through progress that we make our calling and election sure, to use the language of 2 Peter 1.10. 5. Believers are to strive after holiness, but not with their own strength. Rather, not with their strength alone. We must strive with the strength that God provides. 
And when we are striving, we are to make use of the means that God has provided for our growth and grace. We must abide in Christ to produce godly fruit. And we must partake of the ordinary means of grace. The Word of God read and preached. Prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. These are all to be administered when the saints assemble to fellowship with one another. We are to strive for holiness with everything that is in us, but not in our strength alone. Paul wrote to the Philippians saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there is to be striving, but it is to be striving that is carried out with the strength which God provides us. Six, Christians are not to strive after holiness alone, but must pursue it within the church and with others. Here in the church, Christians are to encourage one another, and we are to stir one another up. Here is Hebrews 10, 21 and following. Listen carefully to this text. The writer to the Hebrews, probably Paul, said this, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are to strive after holiness. Having been cleansed by the Lord, we are to pursue holiness in in the whole of life together. We are to not neglect to meet together. And when we meet together, we are to consider how we might stir one another up to love and to good works. Seven, As we strive after holiness in the church, we must not despise discipline. Discipline is such an important part of church life, brothers and sisters. And please hear me. Before discipline is formal and corrective, according to passages like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5.11, it is organic and formative. I wonder if you know the difference between these two things. There is such thing as formal church discipline. Sometimes that involves rebuke, and when there is no repentance, it may even involve excommunication. It is formal discipline and corrective church discipline that we often think of when we hear the word discipline. But before it is ever formal and corrective, it is what I am calling organic and formative We need to start with this truth when we talk about discipline. God disciplines His people. He does this continuously because He loves them. He does this through the church and through the means that He has provided for their growth in Christ. And God's people are to exhort, encourage, and correct one another continuously because they love God and one another. This is what I mean when I talk about organic That word is so overused, but I'll use it anyways. Organic and formative discipline. It's it's when Christians come together to encourage one another in the Lord. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. He said, Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
Help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul is not here writing to elders only. He's not here speaking of formal or corrective church discipline. He's writing to the church at large and he is saying, brothers and sisters, when you come together, be at peace. When you come together, admonish the idle. If, there's in, if there are any who are idle, who have grown lethargic in the Christian life, admonish them. If there are any who are faint-hearted, who are discouraged, who are downcast, what should you do with them? You should not admonish them. That is not what they need. They need to be encouraged. And what about those who are weak? Do they need to be rebuked because they are weak? No, they need to be helped. And in every instance, we are to be patient. We're to be patient with one another. This is what I am referring to when I talk about organic and formative discipline. It's the kind of thing that is to take place constantly in the church. Uh, Brothers and sisters, discipline is not the work of elders only. It is not the work of pastors only. Even when there is formal church discipline, the church must be involved. Tell it to the church, Matthew 18 says. But here I am referring to this this formative discipline, this organic kind of body life discipline. It is the work of the entire congregation. Do not be slack in this. Do not put the burden upon your pastors only. It is your job to come together and to talk about things of substance. If you see someone who is idle, they should be admonished. If you see someone who is faint-hearted, they should be encouraged. If you see someone who is weak, they should be helped, not by the elders only, but by you, the church, you see. We cannot, we cannot neglect discipline, neither in its formal nor in its formal sense. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 also speaks of formative discipline. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice again the emphasis upon gentleness. Uh, it kind of sounds like that emphasis upon patience in the previous passage. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 1-2 through Again I say, formative discipline is not the job of the elders only. Every member should be concerned to encourage others in the temple of Christ in their pursuit of holiness. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The stones of God's new creation temple are those who have been made holy by the shed blood of Christ. And these will pursue holiness in their way of life. For God has cleansed them, renewed them, freed them, and is sanctifying them still. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us. Help us to pursue Christ individually. Help us to pursue Christ as a congregation. I pray your blessing upon this church that we would grow in holiness in the days and decades to come. We know that we have been made holy, but help us to be holy, O God, just as you are holy. May we strive with everything that is in us, but only with the strength that you supply. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.